This is Living Faith, the podcast ministry of First Baptist Church of Avon Park, Florida. We are located at 100 North Lake Avenue. Our Sunday morning services start at 1045 a.m. Sunday school is at 930 a.m. You can find out more information about First Baptist Church at fbcap.net. This message is part of a series entitled, Look and Live, Life and Light in the Gospel of John. And we're here to hear from the Holy Spirit. I will lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day or the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and you're coming in from this time forth and forevermore. If you're already turned there, if you're not already turned there, turn with me to Psalm 121. I've just read it, but I'm going to have us read it together. I know we have some different versions and translations in the house, and that's okay. We should all kind of sync up sometime along the way. If we get too far off, just listen to where I am and join back in when you know where we are. But I think this should be fairly easy to follow all together. Psalm 121. Let's read this aloud together as if we were singing it as a song. Let's recite it out loud together with me. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray as we continue. Thank you, God, for this opportunity to open your word and to read a song. A song that was certainly penned by a man, but that you inspired. And how wonderful it is to think of reciting and singing back a song that you have given us. To sing to you. And Lord, now in this time, I ask that you would open our eyes to understand what we're reading and that your Holy Spirit would be here with us and that he would be our teacher and our guide and our leader in this time. Again, let us decrease. Let me decrease as you increase, as Jesus is magnified in this place. Be our help and our teacher today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We've sung this song together. If you'll look at the little subtitle right before the psalm starts, you'll see um, a little subtitle that says, A Song of Ascents. 
Psalms 120 through 134 are the 15 songs of ascent, songs of ascent, songs of going up. And these were songs that were designated uh, by the psalmist and really by the Holy Spirit to be sung as the people of Israel were doing their pilgrimages to the holy city, Jerusalem, for three main festivals of the year. Now, I'm sure they went many times, but there were three times when it was required, if possible, for faithful Jews to go to Jerusalem to the temple. No matter where they lived in the world, there would be this pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Tabernacles, and the Feast of Passover, three of the high holy days in the Jewish religious calendar. And these Jews from all over the world at that time, the known world, would travel to Jerusalem. And this was their, as it were, their road trip playlist. Psalm 120, you might know what a playlist is. I want to explain that for some folks. Playlist these days. You put a list of songs together, and these days you can just go find the song, download it, and just drag it over into a little file, and boom, 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 boom. You can have a thousand, two thousand, three thousand song playlist for whatever you're going to do. You want to make a road trip playlist? You want to start with on the road again? And then you want to go to maybe some Desperado? I don't know. Um, Revealing too much. But that's, that's a road trip playlist. You can make a playlist for anything. Sad day playlist, rainy day playlist, um, breakup playlist. It's the day after prom, right? Some of those are coming. Warning. Breakup break playlist. Uh, back in the day, I guess, uh, Carrie's age, you did mixtapes, right? Did you ever do one? You stick a tape in one side, the song comes on the radio that you want, hit the record button real quick. And then you got to wait for the next one to come on whenever it comes on and hurry up and hit record. So you might have little chops and pieces of songs here and there that you put together. Before that, I don't know what you did. I mean, you had you know, the vinyls and I don't know. And you just got in the, walking down the road humming songs to each other. I don't know what you did before that. But these are playlists. It's, it's songs we put together to come and, and tell us a certain theme, to tell a certain story, to get us in a certain mood. That's what these psalms were. They were uh, playlists of the people of Israel as they were going into the promised land. Not the first time. This was way after the Exodus, way after they had come into the land the first time. They were living other places, maybe over in Greece or in Italy or, or down in North Africa or around. But during these festivals, they would come to Jerusalem and they would sing these songs together. And so we look at Psalm 121. It's the second of these psalms of ascent. And I want us to see four things today from this Psalm, and it's broken down pretty nicely in most of our Bibles, verses 1 through 2, the Lord is our helper. Verses 3 through 4, the Lord is our sustainer. Verses 5 through 6, the Lord is our refuge. And verses 7 through 8, the Lord is our guardian. So let's start first with the Lord is our helper, verses 1 and 2. This whole, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? Some of your translations might render it as a statement. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From whence cometh my help? And really the uh, the punctuation is unknown. Is it a question? From where does my help come? That he's about to answer? Or is it a statement? My help comes from the Lord. Uh, Either way, it's okay. The next verse says, my help comes from the Lord. Whether it's a question, he answers it. If it's a statement, he follows up on it. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. So as I said, this is a psalm, this is a song that the people of Israel would sing to one another. They would sing in these groups as they would travel together to the holy city, to Jerusalem. 
And a song of ascent. Why is it ascending? Because once they got to the holy city, once they got close, they began this ascent. These hills, these mountains that led up to the holy city that was on a high place. And on the highest place in that city was the Temple Mount, Mount Zion. And the people were reminded when they looked at the temple of God's faithfulness, God's presence with them, his glory that lived in the midst of them, that reminded them that this is the God who came with them out of Egypt, who lived with them in the midst of them in the tabernacle in the wilderness, and who now has put his sanctuary on Zion's holy hill in the middle of his holy city, in the midst of his people. And they would be climbing these these boulders and rocks and pathways, and then the city gates would come into view, and then the temple itself would come into view, And they would ask this question, I lift up my eyes to the hills, where does my help come from? As they were lifting their eyes to Jerusalem and to the temple, they would ask this question, and then they would answer it, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. What's so great about the temple? The temple was God's visible presence with his people. It's where the holy place was. It's where the holiest place was, the holy of holies, where the ark of the covenant was, the mercy seat where God's glory and his name lived in a very real sense. The people, though, they knew, and if they were honest with themselves, they knew that the temple didn't contain God. The temple in Jerusalem didn't, didn't somehow put borders on God as if, oh, now we're coming to God because we're coming to Jerusalem. We're closer to God because we're at the temple. That was never the purpose of the temple. They knew this wasn't the case. In fact, when Solomon built the temple and he prayed over it in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27, Solomon even said this, Will God indeed dwell on the earth? The answer obviously is no. Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Solomon knew when he was building the temple, he wasn't building a little cage for God. When Nehemiah built the walls of the city, they weren't building a little place where this is our little territorial tribal God, our little tribal deity for our family, and this is is where he is. And so the pilgrimage wasn't this idea that we're coming to Jerusalem because that's where God physically is and he's nowhere else. How do I know this? Because they answer the question, my help comes from the Lord. Not from the temple, not from Jerusalem. Those are reminders. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Tribal deities in this time were very common. Different nations would have their own gods. And even within different nations and different pagan groups, they had their own little different family gods. And maybe they were a polytheistic nation, and this family chose to worship and serve this god more than the others. Maybe this family chose to serve and worship this god more than the others. The blacksmiths would have had their god. The ironsmiths had their little goddess. And then maybe the, uh, the farmers and all those people would have their own little god. And they would worship, and they were all okay with this. So enter into that equation Israel... And they're okay with the Israelites worshiping Yahweh. That's fine. That's your tribal God. That's fine. We see when the Philistines attack Israel and actually take the ark, they want to bring the ark into their own temple with Dagon and all their false idols. It's just a little addition to our collection. Here's this God amongst many. That's not what Israel knew to be true. Israel did not see Yahweh as their God, and that's your God, and that's your God, and that's your God. They don't say, blessed be the God of Israel, although he is. 
Where does my help come from? My help comes from Yahweh who made heaven and earth. He is the creator God, the only one true and living God. That's what Israel was confessing, not one God among many, but the only one true and living God. That's where our help comes from, the Israelites said. If I could add a modern application onto this, we see a mess in our current culture, the issue of pluralism. Pluralism meaning uh, many, and, and when it's applied to religion and, and the thoughts about God and faith, you know you've heard this before on TV or somewhere. Somebody probably said it to you in your family or your workplace or your, or, or your friends. That's your truth, and that's fine for you. That's your truth, and that's fine for you. You believe what you believe, I believe what I believe, and you be okay with me and I be okay with you, and let's all just get along, and it's fine. That's not my truth. You know, you believe in Jesus, you go to church, you have, you're a Christian, that's fine, that's good for you. That's not really what I'm into. You read your Bible, you think that's the holy book of God, that's great. I have this book, or I have this thought, or this philosophy, or this mindset, and that's what I believe is God's voice to me. And that's fine that you have yours, but let me have mine. And don't tell me mine's wrong. I won't tell you yours is wrong, as long as you don't say mine's wrong. That's the culture we live in. That's your truth and my truth and your Savior and my Savior. And that's your way to God and my way to God and the Oprah Winfrey religion. There's one God, maybe many gods, who knows? He, she, it, they, we, them, everything. And there's many paths to this one truth. They've gotten so weird about it that they don't even call it gods or goddesses or whatever anymore. It's just the universe. It's all controlling whatever power they say there's many ways, many paths. If, you, if you're familiar with the Unitarian Universalist Church, it's a con, not really a church at all. It's a combination of two um, old mainline liberal denominations, the Universalist Church, so-called Universalist because they believe that salvation is universal and, and no one will end up in hell. And then the Unitarian Church, which denied the Trinity, it denied the deity of Christ, it denied many things. And they kind of merged and made one very unhappy child, the Unitarian uh, Universalist Church. And, and one of their ministers wrote this prayer. It's got a lot of pretty words in it. Now I want to ask you what kind of hope it brings you. God of many names and mystery beyond all naming. Persist in guiding us into a quiet measure in this moment, that we might link heart to heart in the stillness and calm, leaving behind all scurrying and fury, rush and contempt for the shore of this quiet moment. Very soothing, isn't it? We who gather today, coming from many corners of the land, join in breath over breath, whatever that means, so that we might hold the suffering and care for the mourning and celebrate with the joyful. Well, that's okay. That's biblical. Today we pray over those in our midst. We're praying for people now. Get that. And we appreciate those who have enough spirit to give today. Hey. We pray. Hold on. We pray in the names of all those known and unknown, present and absent, remembered and forgotten. We pray in the names of all helpers of humankind. Amen. My first question, if that was to be a prayer in a worship service, would be, okay, question number one, who or what are we exactly addressing here? And what are we exactly asking for? 
that offers no hope to me. That offers no assurance in times of trouble to me. God of many names, whoever you are, mystery beyond all comprehension. And then I compare that to Psalm 121. Where does my help come from? My help comes from Yahweh, the maker of heaven and earth. That's assurance right there. That's confidence there. Not in some amorphous prayer to whatever and whoever and wherever and whatever for and in the names of these people and those people. And uh, I don't care about a quiet moment if I'm still burdened with the burdens of this world and with my sin and I still have the question, where is my help coming from? That offers no hope. This does. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He is the source of life. He is the source of help. He is the source of comfort and refuge and guidance and security and assurance. And apart from him, we have nothing. That's good for Israel, right? Good for them. They have this song they sing. They're going to the temple. They're on this pilgrimage. That's great for them. What does it mean for us? We don't have a temple. We don't have a physical temple, a holy place, a holy of holies, the Ark of the Covenant. We don't have, uh, we have a, a building here. We don't have the sacrifices and the priesthood and the holy city, and we don't go on pilgrimage to these places. So what in the world? When we read this, it's fine for us to understand what it meant to them. It's fine for us to understand this whole song of ascents and why they were going there, and that's great and all, but what does it mean for us? Well, here's a key to reading any passage of Scripture, but especially the Old Testament. And the Psalms are kind of tricky sometimes to to apply in this way. What does it mean for us New, New Testament Christians on this side of the cross? We must read any part of the Bible through the lens of the cross of Jesus Christ. We must read any part of the Bible through the lens of the New Testament and the Gospel. And so we, on this side of the cross, having the fullness of God's revelation in Jesus Christ, we can approach Psalm 121 and say, that's great, that meant that for them. And that's true. And then we can say, what does it mean for us? And there's actually an answer. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is the true Israel. Israel was a chosen servant of God. God called Israel his son. His child. God called Israel his servant. His anointed chosen servant. That all sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Sounds like Jesus. He is the son of God. He is the chosen one of God. He is the anointed one of God. And he comes to buy a people for God. That sounds a lot like Israel. He's the chosen servant and the anointed king of God in the world. And the Bible says in Colossians 2.17 that the temple, the tabernacle, the sacrifices, the priesthood, the holy of holies, the ark of the covenant, you name it. Whatever we read about in the Old Testament concerning the worship of God in the temple and the tabernacle and so on. Paul says in Colossians 2 that these are shadows and types of things that were to come. But the substance is Christ. So when we see the temple, when we see the tabernacle, when we read a song of ascents about these old covenant people going to an old covenant holy city, to an old covenant temple, to an old covenant holy place for an old covenant festival, 
We can say those were holy and good and righteous things. But now we know that they were just shadows and types and symbols of that which was to come. That the fullness, the substance, the meat is Jesus and what Jesus has done. So then we approach this a whole different way, don't we? We say that's good for them. That's what it meant. Now we can apply it to a New Testament framework. Jesus, John 1.14. We read this recently. The word became flesh. And he came to live among us. He came to tabernacle with us. That's the literal word. He came to be a tabernacle for God in our midst. He himself was the very presence of God. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 1.20, every promise, every promise, old covenant, new covenant, whatever, every promise has its yes and its amen in Jesus. He is the tabernacle. He is the temple. He is the better priesthood. He is the sacrifice. He is the lamb. He's the covenant people. He's the covenant place. He's the promise. Jesus is the fulfillment of all those things. If we don't get that, then we can't apply this to the church today. We must stop there first. Jesus was also a pilgrim, wasn't he? He was a sojourner in a foreign and a strange land. He's a Hebrew, Hebrew, old spiritual not a Hebrew spiritual, an old slave spiritual that talked about Jesus as a poor, wayfaring stranger. A sojourner in a distant and a foreign land. That's Jesus leaving the throne of heaven, coming down to walk amongst us as a man. He even spent 40 days in the wilderness. Why do you think he spent 40 days in the wilderness? 40 days? Sounds familiar, doesn't it? 40 days? Israel spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness. I think God's showing us something about Jesus. Jesus is this chosen, anointed servant. He's the fulfillment of all those things. So what about the temple stuff? Okay, you've got the big picture. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Covenant. What about the, the temple, the, the specifics here of this, of this text? What about this temple stuff? Jesus is God's presence with us. Jesus called himself a temple, John 2, 19. Destroy this temple, and within three days I will rebuild it. The Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, they thought he was talking about the physical temple, and they mocked him. How are you going to destroy the temple, and you're going to rebuild it within three days? Jesus was talking about his body. Why? Because he was the dwelling place of the fullness of God. They didn't understand. They were so captivated by all the pretty architecture and the stones and the bricks and the curtains and the, and the religious artifacts and the tables of the, the bread and the tables for this offering and the altar for this offering. They were so caught up in the tradition and in the physicality of everything that standing right in front of them, they missed the big picture. This is the fullness of God, Jesus. So we look to the temple, that points us to Jesus. Colossians 2.9 says that in Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That's very different from the temple. God was there, his name was there, his glory was there, but in Jesus, the fullness of God is there. We don't have time to go through all of these passages, but you might want to mark just Hebrews 8, 9, and 10. He, they, they tell us a bigger story. Hebrews 8, 5 says that the temple and the tabernacle, they were copies and shadows of heavenly things. Hebrews 9 says that Jesus entered the heavenly holy place when he offered himself on the cross. Hebrews 10, 19 through 23 says that the veil was not so much about the holy of holies, 
but the veil was Jesus' body. And the picture of the veil tearing in the temple was not so much about now we have all access to God, though it is that, but it was saying that the way has now been created to God through the torn body of Jesus Christ, who is the veil that leads us into the presence of God. Hebrews 8, 9, and 10. Go read them sometime. They're wonderful. And they show us that all those things in the temple fulfilled in the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, who opened a way for us to God through his own body. And so Jesus is that perfect, perfect, eternal temple. And he offered himself, not in an earthly temple, he was outside the city. He was outside the walls of the city when he offered himself. But the Bible says he, did, he, would, he, wasn't, he wasn't concerned about the earthly holy place. When he was on the cross, he entered into the heavenly holy place where God actually is. And there he offered himself as a once and for all sacrifice of sin. So what we see then is that's the reality. This is the picture of that. So when we approach Psalm 121 and we say, what does this mean for us? These Old Testament pilgrims coming to the holy city, coming to the temple. They only saw the shadow and the type and it was wonderful and it was righteous and it was good and it was holy for them. But now we must understand that when we read this and we think about the temple and the holy city, we are looking to Jesus. We are looking to him who is the author and the finisher of our faith. We're pilgrims too, aren't we? That's what the New Testament calls us. Peter says that we're exiles, sojourners in a foreign land. That's a lot like Israel. Hebrews 11.10 said that while Abraham was seeking the holy city, or he was seeking the promised land, he was actually seeking a better city whose builder and maker was God. That even when Israel came into the promised land, the land that God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even when they came into the promised land physically, that wasn't the reality. That was a type of that which is to come. And Hebrews says that by faith, Abraham wandered, looking for the promised land, obeying God's call to go to this promised plot of land. But even that promised plot of land was not the end in itself. But it pointed to a city whose builder and maker is God. It's not made with human hands. It's a heavenly Jerusalem, a heavenly promised land. We must wrap our minds around these things before we can enter into this text. Ephesians 2, 6 through 7. God raised Jesus up. He came as a pilgrim. He suffered. He died. He was buried. He rose again on the third day. God raised him up. Romans 8, 30. Paul says that if we are in Christ, we are already glorified. What in the world? We know that we're going to die and go to heaven and there's a resurrection coming and we're going to be glorified in that time. Paul says you're already glorified if you're in Christ. How is that true? If you belong to Jesus, just get this. This is, this is the good news of the gospel. If you belong to Jesus, if you are in him by faith, he has already come and wandered for you in the wilderness. He has already given himself and opened the temple to God for us. He has already been buried and rose again on the third day and he has ascended into the very holy of holies in heaven. And if you are in him by faith, Ephesians 2 says, guess what? You have been raised with him. 
and you are seated with him in heavenly places. And then Romans 8.30, you are already glorified in him. It's as if it's already happened. Do you understand this? These people were going to an earthly temple and an earthly holy place. And they were looking forward to something in the future that God was going to do through his anointed servant, Jesus. We now have access to the fullness of that revelation because we have the gospel of Jesus dead, buried, crucified, and risen again on the third day. Not only that, but ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God for us. And if we are in him, we are there with him right now. It's already a reality for you if you're in him. That's the real holy place. And so we, as it were, are pilgrims on this journey towards that holy place, towards that temple, toward that presence of God, where really we already are in him, and we will realize it one day. And so when you say, where does my help come from? You can't look to a physical temple or a physical priest or a physical altar or something like that. We don't look to those. We don't want to look to those. Why? Because we're now looking to the reality, which is Jesus at the right hand of God the Father. And so when we say, where does my help come from? They say, the Lord who made heaven and earth, looking at the temple, we see the fullness of God in Jesus Christ. And we say, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth and has offered himself for me and has risen again on the third day for me. I am in him, I am in him and where he is, one day I will be also. That's the glory of the gospel and that's the glory of this text if you are in Christ our help comes from the Lord Hebrews 12 2 tells us this fix your eyes on Jesus look to Jesus he is the author and finisher of our faith Hebrews 12 1 just before that because we look to Jesus we should run the race that is set before us because our help comes from him. To the lost today, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you don't know what that means. You don't know anything I'm talking about. <laughs> the gospel has not made its home in your heart. You haven't yet professed faith in Christ. To the lost person today, the unbeliever in this room, look to the Lord. He is your help. To the believer today, look to the Lord. He is your help. Number two, the Lord is our sustainer, verses three through four. This would have certainly been a long trek to Jerusalem for many. Some journeys would have led over hills, over mountains, unpaved roads, rough paths full of stones, sand, shifting sands, maybe even through water, rivers, lakes, streams. It would have been a hard, arduous journey for many. Do you think that no one ever fell Along the journey. I mean, it says, He will not let your foot be moved. But do you think that no one ever fell along the journey? Do you think that no one was ever seriously injured along the journey? Do you think that no one ever dropped dead in the heat of the desert on this journey to Jerusalem? So, what then? Do we read this and we say, This isn't true? God can't keep His promises because that guy just fell and I just uh, stubbed my toe on this rock. And Mima just died back there along the way to Jerusalem. You think that, that this psalm isn't true? Do they think they, they didn't understand the reality of the situation? Many of us might think the same thing. Maybe in your life right now, there's suffering, physical, emotional, you name it. Maybe in a very literal sense, you fell just this past week somewhere. 
You tripped, you stumbled, you fell, your foot slipped. And so we read this, and you might read it in your devotional time and say, uh, he will not let your foot be moved. Well, I just fell last week, so that can't be true. You think that they didn't understand the reality of people dying and being hurt and being sick and actually falling along the journey? They knew this was a reality, just like we know it's a reality. And so do we look at the promise and we say, that's just not true for me? I must be a bad Christian because I tripped this past week. I must be a terrible Christian because I physically or spiritually fell. My spiritual, physical foot must have slipped, and God must not have been watching over me. Of course, that's not the picture. We just talked about the big picture. We're not on a physical journey to a physical temple where God physically lives. We're on a pilgrimage to heaven. We're on a journey to the fullness of God in Jesus Christ. That's the real picture. And so when you put it into that framework, just like they were, they knew their help didn't come from the temple. They knew this wasn't merely a physical journey, but it was a representation of their fullness in God. Just like we know it's our representation of our fullness in Christ. And as we're traveling along life's road, spiritually, physically, mentally, we will fall, we will fail, we will stumble. We will obviously physically die. We don't look at that promise and say it's not true because this life and your circumstances right now, physical or whatever, are not the big, full picture. Even for Israel, they knew that the temple did not contain God. They knew this was a bigger deal. Remember, Christ has gone on before us into heaven. Through his sinless life, his vicarious death in our place, and his glorious resurrection, he has already entered the heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly holy of holies. And he stands there pleading for us and assuring us that that is our hope. Our physical steps will falter and fail. We will trip and fall, literally and physically. We'll break our hips, we'll break our wrists, we'll break our arms. Sickness will overcome our body, we will grow tired, and we will die. But this isn't the real reality, is it? We're looking forward to another city whose builder and maker is God. How about spiritually? Today, for believers, even in this place today, maybe this past week, maybe this past day, maybe even this morning, you have spiritually fallen into sin. You've taken your eyes off Jesus like Peter and you've begun to sink down into the mire, into the water of sin or the flesh or the world or whatever it is, it'll happen. This is why it's so key for us to understand that no part of my salvation depends on me. You ought to be running right now. No part of my salvation or your salvation depends on me or you. Salvation is from the Lord. Even when we are faithless, he is faithful. Someone said, trust me, if you could lose your salvation, you would. I say it for me. If I could lose my salvation, I would. If it were possible, it would have already happened. John 10, 27 through 29, Jesus says, Father has given me many sheep and I will lose none of them. No one snatches them out of my hand. Let me read for you John 6, 39 through 40. 
This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. Okay, what has he given him? What has the Father given Jesus? Us. But I will raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believe in him, believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Do you get the certainty of that? The Father has given us to Jesus to be his sheep, and he is a good shepherd, and not one of us will be lost. I will have all that the Father has given me, and I will not lose one. And I will raise them up on the last day. Though our weary steps may falter, and our soul athirst may be, Gushing from the rock before me, lo, a spring of joy I see. Francis Crosby, great hymn. Fanny Crosby, not Francis. It'd be better if it was Francis, but Fanny for now. Fanny Crosby's great hymn. Our weary steps will falter physically, spiritually. We will be sick. We will fall physically. We will die. Spiritually, we will fail God. We will betray him. We'll turn our backs on him. We'll sin. We'll fall into serious sin sometimes. But it's God who is faithful. It is God who has saved you. It's God who has given you to Jesus. And Jesus will not lose you. Isn't that far more comfort than just knowing that you're not going to trip going out the door? You can strike me dead right now physically if it means that I belong to Jesus. That makes all the other stuff we complain about look so trivial, doesn't it? I just fell last week. Maybe this promise isn't for me. You're, You're missing the point. You belong to God and he will keep you through all the physical junk and into eternity. You belong to him. Look at the the, the watchfulness of God in the last part of verses 3 through 4. He who keeps you does not slumber. He does not slumber or sleep. Sounds like a callback to 1 Kings, doesn't it? Remember when Elijah was challenging the prophets of Baal? Whose God will send down fire? Who's the real God, Baal or Yahweh? And as the prophets of Baal are out there dancing around and taking their clothes off and cutting themselves and trying to get, trying their hardest to get the attention of a God who doesn't exist, Elijah stands on the other hill and in almost comical fashion mocks their worship. Perhaps your God is asleep. Perhaps he's gone on a trip, Elijah says. Elijah, in Elijah fashion. Perhaps your God is using the bathroom. It's there, read it. That's not Yahweh. He does not slumber or sleep. And his watch over you is constant, steadfast, and sure. 1 Thessalonians 5.24, Paul says, He who called you is faithful. He will surely do it. It was never about an earthly pilgrimage or falling on some rocks. It was never about physical injuries that come and go. These are eternal themes. And God is the one who is faithful and keeps us to the end. That's why we can say with Jude, a word of worship now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. 
That's the real picture. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority for all time, now and forever. Amen. Verses 5 through 6, the Lord is our refuge. The Lord watches over you. Look at the covenant faithfulness of God here. He's your keeper. He's your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day or the moon by night. He will preserve your soul. Now, let's go to the physical again. Let's see what they might have been singing about. Again, this was a long journey through the desert, through the wilderness to to Jerusalem. There is the actual sun, you understand it, and it's hot, and it's a desert. Not a lot of water, because there's not a lot of water, there's not a lot of trees for shade. And so this would have been maybe an actual literal circumstance that the people would have found themselves in. The blazing heat of the sun shining down with no water and no shade. And the psalmist says, and these people would have been singing to each other, the Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not strike you by day. And some of them, again, they knew the reality. Even as they were seeing it, someone might have been having a, a heat stroke a mile back. They knew the reality. We know the reality. Nevertheless, they sang, the Lord is your shade on your right hand. And the sun shall not strike you by day. Even in the daytime, it was treacherous. Through the caverns and the cliffs, robbers and thieves would wait to attack people, pilgrims, people that might have been separated from their group for some reason, the elderly, the helpless, the weak, the slow moving. And thieves would pounce down and destroy them and take everything that they had they were carrying to Jerusalem for their pilgrimage. There's lots of danger in this trek to Jerusalem. And then at night, if it was hot during the day and the sun scorched down during the day, the cold winds of the night would chill Wild animals, even more thieves and robbers. Think about nighttime in the wilderness with no street lamps and no security and no police officers. Could have been a bad place. But the Lord says he watches over you, Israel, by day and by night. The sun shall not strike you by day or the moon by night. And they knew the reality. These bad things happen to people. And we ought to, we ought to just correct that right now, don't we? Why do good things happen to bad people? <laughs> That's God's grace. Why do bad things happen to good people? Sometimes ask that question, right? Why do bad things happen to good people? people, That's a religious question from anybody. God is so good. Why do bad things happen to good people? One theologian said that only happened once. And he volunteered for it. You get that? Why do bad things happen to good people? It only happened once and he volunteered for it. The Lord Jesus Christ, the only good man to ever walk this planet and he said let it come so just go ahead and erase that whole mindset from from our from our brains set your mind on things above not on the things below the pilgrimage for them did not end in the temple it didn't even end in jerusalem their hope was in the god of jerusalem do you have enemies physical probably You're probably thinking of them right now in your workplace, in your family, in your school, your class. You have physical enemies, unfortunately. Do you have spiritual enemies? You better believe you have spiritual enemies. You have one who's like a roaring lion and wants to devour you. 
and all of his wicked, evil hosts that are out to tempt you and to cause you to turn away from God and Jesus. You have spiritual enemies. You have physical enemies. These things are real, but God has promised to be a refuge. And listen, like Job, even if they take your body, they can't touch you. I wish we would wrap our minds around the reality of that statement sometimes. Though my heart and my flesh may fail, God is my portion forever and ever and ever. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. We've got to get over ourselves. You get over yourself. When you're tempted to complain and grumble at God, and God, maybe your promises just aren't true for me. Maybe you're not watching over me. Maybe you don't care about me. Maybe you don't love me. Look to Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, the only beloved of the Father, the Holy One of Israel, God's anointed King and servant. And then listen, betrayed, arrested, mocked, whipped, crucified, and killed at the hands of sinful men. And if that wasn't enough, it was God's will for that to happen. So you're presented with a question today if you're going to complain to God about your circumstances. Are you, am I, better than Jesus? God literally poured out his entire wrath and anger at sin on his son. And it pleased him. You complain when you lose your job. You complain when a loved one dies. These things hurt, and they should. But they shouldn't take our our focus off of God and Christ. Because when we see Christ, we see a man, the Bible says he was a man of sorrows. Acquainted with grief. Grief was his friend. You understand that? that? That's what that means. Jesus knew Psalm 121. He probably also knew Psalm 22. In fact, we know he did because he said it on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But you know what kept Jesus going through the whole thing? The joy that was set before him. He knew that wasn't the end. He knew that wasn't the final thing. The physical pain, even the spiritual pain, that wasn't the big picture. Because Jesus also knew Psalm 16, 10. You will not abandon my soul to death. And you will not let your Holy One see corruption. Peter said that on the day of Pentecost about Jesus. They got the picture. Even if we die, even if we get sick... Even if we suffer and our bodies fail and everything around us crumbles and you lose your job and you lose your loved ones, you lose your friend, you lose your house, you lose your notoriety, you lose your fame, you lose your money. Everything is gone from underneath you. You will not abandon my soul to death. The final victory belongs to God and therefore it belongs to you if you are in him. Should we even talk about the apostles? Eleven of them dying violent deaths for their faith. 
And Jesus said this would happen in Matthew 10. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. And you will be persecuted. And you will be tortured. You'll be taken out of the synagogues. And you might be killed. Are we better than the apostles? John 16.33 is what gave them hope. In this world you'll have trouble. But fear not. I have overcome the world. That's where the hope is. That's where the help is. That's where the refuge is. Let goods and kindred go. They might take everything that you have, but they can't touch you. Fear him who is only able to dis- not only able to destroy your body, but is able to destroy your body and soul in hell. That's God. Let's turn to Romans 8 real quick. And I want us to see kind of a, a New Testament rundown of this wonderful promise. Romans 8, starting in verse uh, 11. Romans 8, 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That's good news. Go down to verse 18. Because of the life that we're promised by the spirit, Romans 8, 18. Now I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. That's great news too. Psalm 8, sorry, Romans 8, 31. Romans 8, 31. We have life in the spirit. The sufferings of this present time don't compare to the glory that's coming. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And Psalm 18.10 promises that the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and they are saved. It's a simple question today. Do you have a refuge in God? Forget the sun and the moon and and all the, the physical things. Do you have a refuge in God? And you might ask, what do I need a refuge from? I don't, maybe you don't have any physical enemies. You're just a really nice person and everybody loves you. Doubtful. Maybe uh, you, you're just not aware of the spiritual enemies and you're think, you think that you're, you're good to go. And there's nobody, nothing coming against you. I'm fine. Everything's good. Your body feels great. Your mind feels great. Everything's 100%. Highly doubt that's the case for anybody in this room right now. But maybe it is. And you might be tempted to say, I'm good. I've got it all together. I don't need a refuge in God. What do I need a refuge from? You know what you need a refuge from? You know what I need a refuge from? God. The Bible promises that judgment is coming on this world. Because of sin, God is going to judge the world. And his judgment will be without mercy. We need a refuge from the wrath that is to come. That's why Psalm 2 tells us to kiss the sun, S-O-N. Kiss the sun. Worship the sun. Find your refuge in him. That's why Joel says that after this time of Judgment and desolation and destruction. Who can survive this day of judgment? And Joel says, those who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. From what? From hell? Yes. From death? Yes. 
but also from the judgment of God himself. And how merciful of God to provide an escape and a refuge from his own judgment that is righteous and holy and is fair. Do you understand that we all deserve that judgment? But he says, run into Jesus, come into the refuge and be safe. Lastly, the Lord is our guardian. The Lord is our guardian, verses 7 through 8. He watches over us. And it's constant. For these pilgrims, it says, He will watch over your soul day and night. He will keep you from all evil. He will preserve your going out and your coming in. You know what that means? Wherever you go, God is watching over you. And these pilgrims sang this to each other, again, in a very literal sense, in a very physical sense, as they were traveling to the temple. But then they knew that the reality of this was that the God who called Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who called them out of the slavery in Egypt, the God who preserved them through the wilderness, the God who brought them into the promised land, the God who gave them the holy city, the God who gave them the temple, he is the same faithful God in their lives. Lives, and he will preserve them and watch over them beyond some physical thing of just keeping them safe and happy all the time. He will bring them to himself. And that's the truth for us. Our bodies might be sick. We will die. We worry. We struggle. We have issues in life. But God is watching over us. And he is guarding us. And nothing can happen to you or to me that is outside the sovereign decree of God. What kind of comfort is that to you? Immense comfort. Not Jim Elliott, who gave his life on a mission field in Ecuador in an uncharted, unknown jungle before they were even able to share the gospel with these people, they were speared down and killed in the river. And you would think, where is Psalm 121 in that? Where's God's justice? Where's where's the fairness in that? He calls this guy. He gives his life to God. He sacrifices everything, leaves the comforts of America, and goes to the deepest, darkest jungles of South America, only to be speared down before they can even do anything. Are you kidding me? What a waste of life that is. Psalm 121 cannot apply to Jim Elliot. Whatever happened to Jim Elliot was under the sovereign watch and control and decree of God. And Jim Elliot knew he wasn't losing anything. Even if I give my life and it seems like a waste to the world, I'm gaining everything. Elliot said. God went on to redeem those people through the family and the missionary friends of Jim Elliot. And now there's a thriving church in those same jungles. But at that time, we say, what in the world, God? That's not right. That's not fair. How would you let that happen? God is watching over his people and he is accomplishing his purposes. The Lord is our guardian. And notice the last part. From this time forth and forevermore. The end is eternity. Turn back to Romans 8 with me and let's read the closing part of Paul's words there. Romans 8 31. 
I think you're going to see the, the correlation here. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he also not with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. What can happen to us? The answer is nothing. Verse 35, what then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, or famine, nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. What kind of love is this? For I am sure, I like the old, I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you understand the complexity and the totality of the nothing? Nothing can tear you away from the love of God. And Paul covers the gambit, I think. I think he covers it pretty well. Whatever's going on in your life right now, spiritually, physically, mentally, emotionally, so on and so forth, all the way down the line, none of it, none of it can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And nothing will take you out of his hand. Now we look at Psalm 121 and we say, that's true. Believer, maybe today you're encountering some spiritual problems. Sin, temptation. Adult men, fathers, maybe you're having difficulty loving your wife, loving your children the way you ought to. Maybe you you know that something's wrong in your marriage and in your family, but you don't really know what to do about it. It's okay. All you have to do is say, I need help. (laughs) My help comes from the Lord. Young men, teen boys, you people. Maybe you're you're battling a, a sin, an addiction, sex, lust, drugs, whatever it is. Teen girls, too. Your help is in the Lord. Adult women, we don't, you don't struggle with anything, do you? <laughs> Mothers, your families, finances, single moms, finances, struggles, emotional stuff. Whatever it is in this room today, believer, God is your help. He might never fill your purse or fill your finances or give you the job you always wanted or the house you always wanted or even the family you've always wanted, but he is faithful to help you. Maybe you got physical problems today. We don't talk about this a lot, do we? Maybe you got some physical problems in this room today. Some physical illness, some physical sickness. 
Josh, can I share that, that little tidbit? That might be encouraging. <laughs> Maybe a little bit. Josh's dad, who, who had just had heart surgery, serious heart surgery last year, had a, what Josh described as a small stroke on Friday night. And he says, it's a small stroke. The doctors don't seem too concerned. Josh went out to see him, and, and okay, that's fine. I talked to Josh this morning. How was the, uh, how was the, the stroke? It was a small stroke, right? And he said, actually, it was a big stroke. Big brain bleed. And uh, it just stopped. You understand this? It just stopped. Josh said all by, all by itself. I, I know what you meant. All by itself. The doctors come in and say, you had this and you're talking to me right now? We might be Baptists, but we still believe God can heal. Amen? God can heal and God can do miracles. And yet we should always, always, always preface things with, nevertheless, not my will, but what yours is be done. I mean, Jesus did that. We can probably do that. That doesn't mean we can't ask. Physical problems in this place right now. I don't even know what they are. You know what they are. You're experiencing them. Maybe you're having it right now and you can barely sit still because of the pain. God is your help. And even if he doesn't relieve the physical pain, remember one day he will. Unbeliever, you need help today. If you don't believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you need help. You need a refuge from the wrath that is to come. And God has sent Jesus, his only son, to be that refuge for you. Bring nothing to him, and he will give you everything. God has made us a promise. If we will run to the refuge of Jesus, if we will find our refuge in Jesus, if we will find our security in Jesus, he has already gone into the holy place. And he is there pleading and interceding for us. He has promised us that we are forever secure, forever helped, and forever home if we're in him. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to sing. And um, as we sing, that's our time of invitation. And all that means is that this, this place down here up front, it's, it's called an altar, but it's really just some steps, okay? It's a place for you to come and pray kind of in a public way show that you need help to ask other people in this congregation to come and pray with you. That's what this place is. Deacons, let's be on, let's be on call this morning for people that need help. Pray. Spiritual, physical, emotional, mental problems. Pray, believer. Unbelievers, come and receive the refuge that can be found in Jesus Christ from your sins. It's free. Place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I'll be down here to talk to you about that. But if you need prayer, come and pray and we'll get someone to come pray with you. And if you need to talk, talk afterward. By all means, get what you need from the Lord today. He's offering it to you for free. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for this day. And thank you for your word. Thank you for the Psalms. We thank you for the goodness that you have promised us to be our help, to be our comfort, to be our refuge, to be our guide. And now as we sing, O oh God, I ask that you would help us to follow you, to trust you. That you would, in this place today, create faith by your Holy Spirit. Lord, draw believers to yourself today to seek the help they need for whatever it is in their life. 
for unbelievers today. Draw them to yourself. Draw them to faith in Jesus Christ today. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.